Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, listeners. We're back with another episode of Philosophy for Our Times. We've been taking a little break from the editing suite because we've been running How the Light Gets In in Hale Mwai, which, if you don't know, is the world's largest philosophy and music festival organised by the IAI. The good news is that we've now returned with armfuls of new content for you to enjoy. Also, don't forget that Philosophy Fest is next week, a week of bonus content to celebrate our 100th episode of Philosophy for Our Times. To take part, tweet us or email us your favourite episode and ask a question that you would have asked the speakers if you could have done. You can do that via Twitter at IAI underscore TV or email us at podcast at IAI.tv. That's podcast at IAI.tv. Today's episode is focused on a hot topic of our political age, elites. Who are the elite? Do we need them? Should we be overthrowing them? The panel features former British diplomat turned anarchist, Khan Ross. We need to work for the eradication of all elites. In almost all circumstances, maybe excepting sports, musicians, certain types of writing. Political theorist at the University of Cambridge, Hugo Jochen. Musicians and sports stars are the best. Well, why shouldn't we want also to be ruled by the best? Uh, what would be the opposite of being ruled by the best? Nobody wants to be ruled by the worst. And mechanical engineer, writer and broadcaster, Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Power tends to be something that people want to accrue and accumulate more of. People rarely sort of sit back and say, well, I have <laughs> enough power now. I'm done. I'm going to go to sleep. Philip Collins hosts. We are in an age, politically, when the elite is regarded as a bad thing. People have had enough of experts, said Michael Gove in the Brexit referendum campaign. Populist governments of all kinds have very little in common, but one thing they do have in common, which is they set the leader as a tribune of the people against usually a corrupt elite. That's, that defines what the populist does. So we're going to explore some of those questions about the nature uh, of elites, whether they're good things, bad things, whether they're avoidable, unavoidable, whether they're porous or impervious, whether we can get into them or out of them. So what we're going to do is each one of our panelists is going to have a four minutes to pitch, to set out their stall, and then I'm going to take us through three questions. Let's crack on. Can I come to you, Khan, first, for your first thoughts on the idea of elites in the doc? My thoughts are fairly simple, which is that we need to work for the eradication of all elites in almost all circumstances, maybe excepting sports, um, musicians, um, certain <laughs> types of writing. Because elites, not just current elites, we tend to personalise it and pick out people we particularly hate, but they're a symptom of two deep problems in society, which if we remove those problems, we would be able to live without elites. The first problem is, of course, elites 
represent power relationships. And um, the elites I want to get rid of are those with power over other people. And those are political elites, of course, who um, uh, uh, comprise government, uh, even political parties. They have power of framing policy discussions, framing what is important for us as a society. Um, and economic elites are those with wealth, uh, who run big corporations, who have accumulated wealth. Um, power is, as Bertrand Russell, Russell put it, the ability to make people do something other than they would otherwise wish to do. And um, I think all power is objectionable. Power in all human relations, where somebody is making somebody else do something else, uh, something coercively, is something that is poisonous in society. It's poisonous in our personal relationships. And it's poisonous in the broader society. Um, and that proposition is something I think most people would accept, and yet we still have elites. And the question is, why then, and what can we do about it? And I would suggest that there is a kind of unstated and rather corrosive contract between the elites and, if I may put it like this, us, though I don't claim to speak for everybody by any means, just myself, um, which is the elites tell us they will sort things out in the world in return for our consent, and we give ourselves the luxury of hating them um, as our uh, kind of uh, price, our price of conscience for allowing them to get on with it. But we have uh, ipso facto given our consent. We have allowed this situation to arise. And by every, every time we participate in an election, every time we write to our MP, we are reaffirming this power dispensation. And so my suggestion is that if we are to rid elite, uh, ourselves of elites, which I think is necessary, uh, we need to change ourselves. And we need to uh, recognize and acknowledge this unhealthy contract between us and them and take the logical next step, which is to assume power ourselves, always avoiding coercive power relationships, but also by taking power ourselves in new institutions, new forms of social organization, new economic forms such as cooperatives, we will um, allow, to steal a, a Marxist phrase, allow the elites to wither away. And I suspect that that objective is something many of us would share. Uh, Hugo, do you want to, you don't have to respond directly, but you want to put your pitch, your, your opening thoughts? Yeah, I'm supposed to be the devil's advocate here, so I'm going to defend, um, I'm going to defend elites, which might not be very popular. It's probably not lost on you that the word elite is a French word, right? And so for a long time, actually, and the New Yorker is still a bit quaint about this, it still uses the accent when he uses elite. That's it's probably quite elite, elite yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's very elite <laughs> to do. Um, and so, but what does that mean? In French, it means the best, right? Elite means the best. And so the idea of having elite is that you have the best. And so f at least to me, there's something intuitively positive about that. Actually, Karen talks about, well, we should maybe keep, you know, musicians and sports stars like the best. Well, why shouldn't we want also to be ruled by the best? Uh, what would be the opposite of being ruled by the best? Nobody wants to be ruled by the worst. Or do we not be ruled at all, which I think is Karna's position. So but I think it's, it might be helpful for the conversation also to, to see where this word elite and what it was originally meant. So it's an Italian economist you've probably never heard of. If you've heard of something called Pareto Optimum. But he, so he's Italian, he's half French actually, writes in, Ita in Italian, he writes in French. 
And he's coming, trying to say, well, okay, we live in these democracies, but it seems that there's still a small group of people who rule. We're not going to call them aristocrats or because there's a kind of hereditary element to it or ruling class is a bit too Marxist. So he comes up with the word elite. And what he says is the way we find an elite is we look at every sphere of kind of activity and then we rank people out of 10 and say, okay, the best will get 10 and the others will get one or whatever. And it's like all the activities. So it's sports, politics, chess, even things, swindlers, prostitutes, whatever. You can all rank them out of 10. The top 10 are the elite. And obviously then in terms of politics, those people are the governing elite. And I think, unfortunately, and I think this is by my disagreement of Carnes, I just, I'm just not entirely sure the societies within which we live today, it's possible to do without them, even if we wanted to do without them. So even in new institutions that we might come up, to my mind, there's always an elite that's going to, there's always going to be a small group of people who are going to control. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think often when we talk, we, are, we live in a modern state, um, it's hard to think that there's not a small group of people who are going to rule. Maybe we can get rid of elites if we no longer are in states, we're in smaller institutions. But the state also is, is not a bad thing. It's, it, can, it can protect you. I mean, you might say that you're not interested in the state, but the state is interested in you. And sometimes it's good to have a state to kind of push back against that. So that being said, so there are, to my mind, there's always going to be an elite. But that doesn't allow us, that doesn't stop us from asking the question, do, is the elite that we have a good or a bad elite? Right, allow, allows us to ask that question. Um, and once we can ask that question, that means we could change the elite. We could ask the question, well, what type of elite um, do we have? Where did they come from? How is it that they come to the positions of power? And if that's the case, can we change these people? Can we change the way that they come to power? And that's a good thing, and that allows us to ask the question, because if we don't see that, there's always a small group of people who rule. If we think that we actually live in a direct democracy where the people really rule, I think we're actually kidding ourselves. But if we see that there is a small group of people who rule, actually that gives us maybe more reason and more kind of theoretical wherewithal to try to change what type of elite we have. You go, thank you. So, uh, Yasmin, we've got two contrasting views that you know, to eradicate elites would be a good thing, would, would be a seeding of popular power. Uh, and then Hugo counters, well, well actually, no, we, we can't do that. And the, the real question is whether we have a good or a bad elite. Do you want, can you add us a third? Yeah, prospect? so I guess my perspective is going to come from a slightly tangential place. So my background is in engineering. I studied mechanical engineering, right? And in engineering, there's a pretty basic understanding of what it takes to be a good engineer and what it takes to be a rubbish engineer, right? And a pretty decent understanding of how you become the best kind of engineer. Right? You come in with a certain amount of knowledge, you increase your knowledge, and essentially you accrue status. You accrue status based on the respect of others that are your peers and how well you do engineering. Now, the difference, perhaps, for me between engineering and, you know, if we're talking about political um, realms, is that in engineering, no matter what position you're in, in this hierarchy, you all work on the same rules. You're all using the laws of physics. And nobody, no matter how high they are in a particular company, no matter where they are in society, they can't use different rules. They are not going to be able to operate on different rules of physics. So therefore, the, the playing field is one that is transparent, is one that I understand, no matter where I come in in the hierarchy. And I can understand that the status that somebody has earned as a very good engineer is one that is credible and legitimate. So I trust in that, if this person is in an, in an elite position, if they're at the top of the hierarchy, they've earned it. 
in the kind of the social contract that we have in the engineering world. What I would argue is that when we talk about elite in this realm, in the political realm, the difference is that we don't all play on the same rules. And so the question that I was asked in this topic is, should we challenge those who are elites, and should we possibly eradicate them? As an engineer, I believe we should always be challenging those who are in any position. That is how you stress test whether something is actually any good. The constant challenging of something, if we're all using the same rules, should be actually desired. Because in the engineering world, to get to the best solution, you iterate. In the science world, you perform tests over and over and over again in order to get to the best result. So challenge is actually an important, in fact, the most important part of the process. So why should that same process not apply to society? If we think about elites, then not only thinking about status, but also about power, and I think the conversation about power is really important. Power tends to be something that people want to accrue and accumulate more of. People rarely sort of sit back and say, well, I have <laughs> enough power now. I'm done. I'm going to go to sleep. No. For some reason, something inherently about power asks us to continue wanting more. But I don't think it necessarily is going to not exist. I think, for me, power is like fire, is like energy. It is something that is neither created nor destroyed, only the form changes. You can never create or destroy energy. It only is transformed into different... You go from light to heat. And so the question for me is, how are we distributing that power? Who gets to choose how, how that power is being distributed? And perhaps it's not about whether an elite should exist or not, but how we make sure that we're all playing by the same rules. Because right now, we're not. And I think part of the reason there is this distrust is because I know that the rules that the elite in the political world are playing by are completely different rules to me. And there is very little that I can do as someone who plays on a different ballgame completely. They're playing chess and I'm playing handball. Right. Completely different set of rules. And yet we're supposed to exist in the same space and use the same resources and so on. So for me, it is a question of first principles in that. How do we make sure that the rules that we're all playing on are the same? And then how do we make sure that the power is distributed? So that you might, in the engineering world, power is distributed, but I know that I'm going to listen to that person because they have a better understanding of the rules than I. And I'm actually okay with that. Can we just pick up where you left off, which is you said that there's an elite which is playing by a different set of rules. I want to explore for a few minutes the that who are this elite and why do they hold these positions and what are these rules they are playing by that you're not playing by? Could you make that a bit more concrete? Can you give us an example of a kind of rule and can we specify who the elite is? Because the elite never, it's never populated, it's just the elite. Who? Who are we talking about? It's an interesting question because I, arguably, in some ways, I'm not part of the elite if you characterize the elite as like, you know, male with a certain amount of wealth, you know, living sort of straight, middle-class, white. I'm not part of that elite at all. And that, in certain societies, I grew up in Australia, that is the, the class that holds power, right? And then if you kind of think more closely, those who hold political power, those who are in business and hold economic power in ways that I don't have access to. However, people in my community, say Muslims, people of colour, women would argue that I am part of the elite because I have a certain level of education, because I'm on this stage. Arguably, the fact that I have platform and voice means that I am part of the elite. So I think for me, 
when I think of the elite, it is of people who are in positions of political and economic power who are unwilling or who set the rules up so that they continue to accumulate power rather than think about what the rest of us broadly desire. Well, Hugo, I mean, one counter to that would be to say Barack Obama. Now, there's someone who did not come from an elite background. In one sense, he did, of course. He came through the gilded elite, the educational elite. But then you might say that's a meritocratic elite, so that's okay. Is that a, is that a good response, do you think? I'm sympathetic to the meritocratic argument, if but the criticism that's often made of meritocracy is that it starts off as being meritocratic, but then actually the rules of the game are conditioned in such a way those who are at the top stay at the top or make sure that their children are at the top. I think when we talk today about to make it concrete, what we really have in mind is it's, the, it's not even the 1%, it's the, the 0.001%, right? They're the elite. And there has been studies in America to show like, okay, who has the most influence on the types of decisions that are made in Congress? And so they say, okay, we have like groups, is it like the medium voter, or is it like uh, certain interest groups, or whatever it might be. And they basically show that those who are um, the richest basically get their way almost 50% of the time, so it's 47%, I think, at the time. And sadly, like the medium voter only gets their way about 15% of the time, and specifically, if there is a conflict between the richest and the majority of the people, the richest win that 80%, I think, of the time, right? So we have these questions. There, there, was, there was an interesting answer to that, was that the role of that trade unions used to play. Sadly, trade unions have really kind of gone down massively, but trade unions were much better actually at defending, there was an institution, and much better at defending actually the general even idea. So they stood in for the general will, whatever you want to call for it, and they were much better at defending it. That, that's an interesting thought from your perspective too, because uh, Hugo's suggesting intermediate institutions, lots of institutions between the state and the individual would have the kind of conversation that would prevent elite politics. Do, do you buy that, or do you think that's just a like the old socialists used to do, that's just, that's just averting the revolution, that kind of bourgeois sop. I, 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 I think it's, um, <laughs> with great respect to my fellow speakers, I think it's worse than that, uh, because it I actually... I was hoping you would. It's, a, it's an excuse, or it's a pretense at an impossibility. Um, the idea of a small number of people ruling a large number of people in that is intrinsic uh, unequal power relations. Um, in that is intrinsic a lack of transparency, and in that, for me, is intrinsic a lack of competence, because I have come to believe, having been a member of what is undoubtedly an elite, which is the British Diplomatic Service, I have come to believe that its gravest flaw is not that it is dishonest, because it's often not, I mean, it was in my case, um, but that it, it is not competent. I but believe is that the fault of the system, or is it the fault of the people that got into it? No, I think it's, a, it's systemic. I don't actually individualize this as people like, there are certain people I certainly hate. Um, uh, uh, but it's actually systemic in that I think we know our own reality best of all. And Popper argued that no small group of people could actually make decisions on behalf of the whole. They would never know the optimal outcome, the optimal reality of those, that larger whole. And the only way to get policy corrected um, to align with what the whole wanted um, was to have frequent elections and to change governments and to change politicians. And I, I don't believe that works, actually, because I, I believe we have a political class 
um, that is not healthy, that is certainly not meritocratic. And I think the idea of if only we had certain institutions that would do this, that, on the other, I think it perpetuates a myth that a meritocracy is actually possible. Come, what, and why, I don't believe can, can that. Can you just, just go into that a bit more? Why is the political elite not meritocratic? What, what, what do you mean? By that, what, what's the um, Well, in, in politics today, um, I mean, I think all politicians should be temporary, recallable, should only represent what uh, a mass of people decide should be the policy. And yet we have what's called representative democracy, where small numbers of politicians rule on behalf of, of the larger number. And I think that that has created a class of politicians who, you know, with the greatest respect and with some noble exceptions, are not the highest... Uh, the highest performing, the best people necessarily, they're certainly not truly representative Surely of us. Surely that's systemic too, isn't Well, they're, they're not representative of us so in general. So you're suddenly individualising it with them. So with the diplomats, it's, oh, it's the system. But with the politicians, it's no, the politicians. No, no, it's the same. It's the same. I'm not necessarily s singling out certain individuals and saying if only we didn't have these individuals. I'm saying that we would have the problem regardless of who the individuals were because meritocracy in a system where some people have power over others is basically a myth. It is a myth sustained by the elite who says, well, uh, we can all... You know, we'll, we will be the best, we are the best. It goes back to Plato's Republic, the myth of the philosopher king who knows better than the mass. I actually believe that the mass knows better than the philosopher king. Do you think that's true? Well, I think it's logical that we know our own circumstances best of all. Sure, but like if I, you know, where I am in Australia, if I assume that the mass knows correct, then the mass, then I should know not wear a headscarf, not live in that country. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that the mass has been responsible for in history that hasn't necessarily been great. I totally agree. I'm not, I mean, the implication of what I'm saying is that mass will have to learn new habits of political behaviour. We can't just hand power over wholesale to the mob and, you know, agree with but hanging. What if, but and what would you do if it doesn't? I mean, the, the Institution of Human Rights, this, this great book, Michael Ignatieff's book, The Ordinary Virtues, is a peer into the great glory of human rights, which has embodied and entrenched certain things which it's not permissible for us to cross. That strikes me as a great advance in civilization. But it is, it it, it's a discourse that's wholly in retreat across the world today, and that is partly because it can only be enforced by governments. Uh, the belief of Ignatieff and other people like him is that governments have the responsibility to enforce human rights for all. I believe that it is much stronger if human rights come from our own normative behaviours with each other. Once we have learned new forms of cooperative behaviour where we take power, we learn about consensus, inclusion and respect, instead of expecting this small group of people to perform these virtues for us. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Hugo, one of the axioms I've always used in politics is that in any argument both sides are always right. And I wonder whether we can't get exactly the, the, the attractive part of what Khan's saying with some kind of government with a, an elite which moves in and out, 
can we? Is there no meeting point between these two? Positions? Well, that's my position. I don't think that's it's certainly not position. his position. No, it's certainly not his position. But no. I like. I mean, I would want to ask a question, which is, what what do we have instead? Because there, you know, there, I would have. A, there's a certain amount of questions. For one, you know, it's like you, what you were saying about the mass. I mean, okay, well, we actually we we had a referendum recently in this country. We've had a decision which doesn't seem like a very good decision at all for lots of different reasons. And it was slightly ironic to hear you say that Plato has this idea that it's the philosopher of kings. And you say, well, of course, you know, the referendum was a, was a bad decision and then what we would need is a long time of education. But the whole point of Plato was precisely that the philosophers became kings because they had a special type of education. So that seems like a bit, who's going to do this education? But specifically, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the criticisms that you might oppose to the, to the world today. I'm just not sure we have alternatives that are better, and I'd be very keen to hear what you think would but replace this. The implication this. of what you're saying, Hugo, is that only people who are properly educated have the right to take decisions, which is an incredibly kind no, of but you said arrogant position, if I may say so. No, sorry, I, but you I'm, said, you said education. Think, you said education would have well, to the, play a very important role. The mass would educate itself once it was finally But who decides, so who's going to do the education? I believe that what has happened is the population as, whole, as a whole has been infantilized and allowed to uh, display irresponsible behavior because they don't have power. When you give people power, they take responsibility. I've seen this myself in countries where groups of people have been denied power. They often resort to violence. When you give those people responsibility for their affairs, true agency, then violence tends not to be the way that they arbitrate their affairs. It tends so, to be more collaborative. I mean, I agree with you on that. However, in lots of cases where those who have been oppressed um, get some sense of power, they then eventually end up being oppressors themselves, no? And they then replicate that same, like, power structure. So I'm curious, like, I, there is a lot that you're saying that I'm, like, nodding in vehement agreement with. However, I don't understand necessarily what that system and structure would look like where people who do have power do not then become accustomed to that power, continue to accumulate it. And the only model of power that we have is one where, where an elite oppresses another. Well, it's not the only model, um, and it has been the dominant model in all of human history, and I would suggest that actually with a broadly educated population and things like the internet to share knowledge, share best practice, we have available for us new forms of organisation. Mm -hmm. And thinkers have thought about this. Anarchist thinkers have been thinking about this for a long time, that you make decisions at the communal level. You might administer decisions that need to be made at a larger scale at a higher level, but only those people uh, uh, participating in that so-called higher level can only represent decisions made at the base. That is a plausible model of government. It's working today Would you in say a place that that's a one where there is a power hierarchy or a power No, inequality? on the contrary. It's a, everything within that system is designed to resist power hierarchy. The re rejection of hierarchy is, an, is a fundamental principle, and that's a difficult thing for us to learn. I'm not pretending this is a utopian blueprint that we can just print on society and it will happen. I fully accept that in our current circumstance, it would actually might be very dangerous, but I think we are capable of learning it. Can I just pick up that? Because very cleverly, without any help from the chair, you've, you've been in the last few minutes into our second question, which is uh, whether the, uh, the increasing distrust of elites might be dangerous. And you've raised that very, very directly. And Hugo, do you think there is a, a danger? I mean, we, let, let's take it as read that there's a, there's a strong distrust of elites across uh, developed nations now. Do you think there are dangers in that? For sure. Actually, I, I, I've been part of this other project that looks at um, the role of conspiracy theories in democracies. And so we've done these surveys with YouGov 
asking questions precisely about trust in elites. And it's minimal. I mean, it's like 2% that actually trust um, government or whatever it might be. So yes, there is, a, there is a huge problem with that. There's a huge problem about the quality of leaders that we've had in the past. This leads to conspiracy theorizing, and I don't need to draw any links between conspiracy theorizing and the election of Trump or even Brexit in this country. I think the one thing that I would want to say, I've been accused of being slightly arrogant, but the one thing I want to say, how many people here, if I may, how many people here would want to be the prime minister? Yeah, there's a few. Yeah. A few people. Yeah, I think the point, the point I'm trying... <laughs> the closest point I'll get. We have, because we have this, we've had this discussion where we've been saying that if people are given power, they'll keep wanting to power. I'm not entirely sure that's true. No. I think sometimes people don't want power, and they're happy for other people oh to yeah, make decisions. Oh, yeah, but once you get a taste of it... In, the, in my experience, but working... Hugo, that's okay, but they can consent, if they consent to that status, that's okay. But if, at the moment, they don't have that consent. We don't actually... There is no point in our lives where this, what's often called the social contract, where we give up our freedoms in return for somebody ruling over us with coercive laws to allegedly give us security. I never consented to that. My parents signed up to it when I was a baby when they put me in the birth register in Lewisham Council. None of us actually consented. If we consent to say, oh, well, I think so-and-so is actually ex much more expert than me and I'm quite happy for him or her to take decisions about my life, that's fine. It's coercion that I reject completely and we are born into coercion and we never get the choice of whether we want to live that way. Hugo, could just, let's, let's just for the moment, let's assume in the, in the next you know, 10 years or so, we're not going to move to some radical departure. And we'll come back to that in a moment, but we're not going to do that in short order. So we are going to carry on with some kind of representative government. In that context, then presumably our disparaging of elites, if that's what it is, is really quite a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Well, or is it healthy? Is that just no, a I think healthy I democratic think culture? No, I think, I think it is healthy. And I'm sympathetic to this idea that there's a, there's a continual challenge, actually. There's this metaphor that, in some of the work that I've been doing for, for democracy, which I think is a wonderful um, metaphor, actually, which is that it's a story of an old um, Italian peasant on his deathbed who tells his sons there's a buried treasure in the field. And so he dies, the sons rush out, they dig up the field, and of course they don't find anything. Right? But the, this is a metaphor for democracy in the sense that we never find true democracy. I'm sorry, Guyana, I just don't think we'll ever find that. But in working towards and striving towards it, you get, you get certain democratic benefits because what the sons did, they didn't find the treasure, but they actually tilled the land, which made that they were able to live off it further. And so I agree, this, this, this challenge. So if it, there's this massive mistrust, which is challenging elites because their behavior hasn't been good, their type of outputs that we've had in, in the last while is no longer acceptable. And maybe this will lead to the renewal of elites with new elites who will actually yeah. be able to deliver on, on much better. Yeah, yeah, let me ask you, what, I mean, if you got to a position, I mean, one, one response would be, okay, the wrong people are in, in the elite power. One answer would say, the, the whole system is, is terrible. It, we should, should disappear. But that's not your position. So therefore, isn't it incumbent on you and the likes of you say, right, well, that'll be me then because I'll be prime minister and I'll be simultaneously ra relaxed and I'll do all the right things. <laughs> I mean, I'm not arrogant to believe that I would operate any better under the circumstances. In would which case, it's not the elite as people then, is it? There's something systemic. Oh, so I agree with the systemic issue, but I'm not sure anarchy is the way to go. Um, I'm from Sudan, right? So like, <laughs> been there. Um, <laughs> systems are actually great. I'm not sure if people have read The End of Protest by Michael White. Um, he was one of the co-founders of Occupy, which is an, a really interesting kind of example of like anarchist um, organizing, perhaps, or organizing that's really kind of grassroots. And one of the things that's really interesting is he believes that the, the sovereignty of people has failed, right? 
Essentially, the fact is we can be super distrustful of everyone in business, and people in business will be totally unencumbered and unaffected by that. We can be very distrustful of people in politics, and their lives will continue. And so actually, protests in the way that we, like people's sovereignty, going out in the streets, the Iraq war, you saw the biggest number of people in, the, in recent history on the streets protesting something, and the politicians did not change their minds. Therefore, the people's sovereignty doesn't have an impact anymore, so arguably his response is, electoral. Now, I think this is, so obviously you're going to disagree, but I'm curious because, to be honest, this is something that I was quite excited about being on this panel, because I'm like, I'm looking for the solution, right? I'm a young person who looks at the world we live in and doesn't see things improving, and, and I think I want to create that parallel system, because right now this existing system doesn't seem to operate for me. However, I, I also just don't trust human beings. Okay, you've just done it again. I think you've read my brief because you've just introduced the third <laughs> question, which is brilliant. There's no need for me to be here. Um, <laughs> with the first question is, well, what would, what would or should society look like then? I mean, we, we've all set out our various uh, different critiques of the elites that there are, although there are some others. I'd, I'd quite like to touch on media elites before, before we, mm. we go as well, because I think that's obviously very mm -hmm, important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but let, let's move on to thinking, well, what should it look like then? I mean, Khan, we, we, we'll come back to you in a moment, because we know you've, you've already actually set out how you think uh, the world ought to look. But Hugo, what, what's your vision then, your, your map of utopia? You know, we talk about different types of elites, and you know, there's lots of questionable, obviously, elites, but to think that politics hasn't changed radically in the last couple of years would strike me as kind of a bit strange. I mean, I don't think anyone in America who isn't, isn't supporting Trump is, isn't concerned. Actually, we should all be concerned. I mean, we have Trump in power. Who knows what's going to happen in Korea? And there's definitely been a change there. Here in this country, it's the same. There's, there's been quite a big change. You know, if Theresa May on one hand, Labour, there's Corbyn, who's, who's the leader that would have been five years ago? No one would have thought that. So there's clearly, there's clearly the, the political system is, is changing and reacting to it. You may agree or disagree with the way it's reacting, but it is reacting. And to think that, you know, we haven't signed, we weren't born and we didn't sign and we agree with this system, you know, we're, st we're still here. I think, you know, most people probably still vote. If you vote that you have some agreement with the system, if I, I just, if some of that might be coercive, some of that might, might be ideological, sure. But, um, but until, I'd really like to hear what, what would be the, you know, what would be the other thing? Because if it, the social contract was so destroyed, everybody would be out in the streets right now. And I'd, sadly, they're not. There, there are lots of protests. Well, because people have to pay rent. Sure. Right? People have to pay rent. But they not have everybody to, has like to pay rent. <laughs> not everyone has to pay rent. That's the problem. <laughs> Genuinely, I would love to protest all the time, but then I would literally be homeless. But I think, I think Yasmin, there's wide, widespread well, acknowledgement of your point that protest is not enough and that large-scale protests, including things like Occupy Wall Street, basically failed to mm. achieve the change they wish. And I'm surprised that an, an Occupy organiser would then conclude that electoral politics was the way to go because the electoral choices in the States in particular are so pitifully bad and so unsatisfactory and, you know, produced horrific results. Now, I want to ask you something very specific, which is raised by that. Okay, how do you fix the housing crisis then? Yes, lots of people are paying rent, lots of people are struggling, we've got a terrible housing crisis. Now, there's a set of conventional solutions which will be, here's a policy and we can fix it. It was going to be unpalatable, but we know what we can do. Now, what would your, how would the, how would the housing crisis work in, in your world, where there's no government to speak of that's doing those things? How's that going to get better? Uh, it's very difficult to 
single out specific policy issues Indeed. in that way. Well, but, but what what I'm proposing... You have to. What, well, you, what you have to do is build new forms of organisation. You have to build for new forms of political cooperation, build new institutions uh, where we decide things together at a local level, including how we distribute land and how we distribute housing. That is a, not an implausible thing. Uh, I've been to a, a, a village run along anarchist lines in southern Spain where they basically do this. The village as a whole decides how to distribute housing, who needs it the most, it's a needs first rather than a wealth first approach. They even build each other's houses uh, rather than subjecting themselves to this appalling asset investment thing which is accelerating the price of houses in a way that's making them unaffordable for most people. Can, can I ask you one more thing, which is uh, I just want to pick up something Yasmin said earlier, which was the suggestion that um, if you allow an absolute flourishing of popular power with no restraint really, then you're going to get some pretty nasty things as well. There's a fantastic line from Camus which he said, democracy is more important for what it prevents than for what it allows. Mm. And that's, I think that's, isn't that not a profound wisdom that, that we've, we've, there's been some appalling, egregious things which democracy is the best system for preventing that we've ever yet devised, isn't it? Well, it may be the best yet, it doesn't mean that it's the best ever. Um, clearly it's inadequate in fundamental ways if faith in institutions, faith in politics is at the state it is. And if the empirical evidence of rampaging inequality, the environmental crisis, what seems to be a permanent war on terror suggests to me that it's not working terribly well. So it's beholden to us, upon us, to seek a better alternative. I'm say saying a new form of democracy, not rejecting democracy per se, a direct participatory democracy of direct interaction with each other where we build new forms of participation, we build new institutions like banks. A cooperative bank is better than a for-profit bank. It is less likely to risk the whole financial system. I could go on. So I'm with you. I think like cooperatives, for example, really fascinating way to share power, to make decisions and so on. However, I don't think that that will necessarily exist without some level of elite in that, even in that conversation. Because if you're having a conversation about housing policy, you are going to have some people that know more about town planning than necessarily anybody, right? And so you don't want to have an entire room of people who have perhaps no knowledge of how to build houses and how to best you know, design a town or a city or so on making decisions like that. I think, I think that's an extraordinary thing to say, that basically we're not, uh, we're not capable of having com making competent decisions about something as fundamental to us as housing and shelter. I mean, there's difference between... Like, okay, but well, also, no, 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 also because, I would dispute... Well, I'm coming from a technical point of yeah. view. Like, I didn't know something bridge? in first year, university... You don't want yeah. me building the And I don't, bridge. like, you wouldn't want I'm the car that I built. I'm not saying build it. I'd let you engineer it, but right. I think people who live in houses have an absolute equal right to state what is best for them in terms of their okay, housing. Okay, but those are different conversations. I would never deny them that agency. I so would start from that premise so rather than starting from the premise then, that experts know best and that there are people who don't know and that experts should be allowed to predetermine pre these decisions. So for me, there's a like devil in the detail because some decisions are really important to have ownership over everybody, for, for everybody to have ownership over them. I'm a Muslim woman of colour, mm. like everybody makes decisions on my behalf without including me or without my ownership, mm. right? However... There are some decisions when it comes to detail around technical things that I think is important, and therefore you will have an elite come out of that, no? I, I completely, I completely I, I, agree I with you. I want to add one more objection too, which is Oscar Wilde once said brilliantly that socialism could never happen because there aren't enough evenings in the week. It so does mean a lot of meetings. So he was I, right about I that. I haven't got time. <laughs>
you well, know, what in, in, what in have my, you got time in my cooperative what are you spending your your e- what are you spending doing time. your evenings doing this is why i say it's a, we're in a dangerous pack, pack between the <laughs> the the lazy and the unaccountable the elite and the rest of us who feel we have the right to criticize them and attack them but not actually do anything about it and i think that that uh, is, it's, a, it's both are problematic, it's not just the elites. I feel rather sorry for politicians, I know quite a lot of them, and they have a horrible, horrible life and sort of subjected to the most appalling insults mm-hmm. on social media, you know, because everybody thinks they have the right to hate politicians. Well, I don't think you have the right to hate elites unless you are actually yourself trying to construct a social or economic alternative. And that is not an implausible thing. Yes, it takes evenings, but those we ha- quite a lot of people have evenings. You know, I don't know what everybody's doing their evenings. I am a father. I run two businesses. I have evenings. I'm able to devote some of my time. It's not enough to building projects of this kind, like a cooperative bank. It's actually deeply satisfying. If people feel that's a possibility, they might do it. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our excellent panel. hope you enjoyed this podcast which was brought to you by the institute of art and ideas so what do you think should we banish all elites from society let us know by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times